around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor on New Civil Engineer. I'm joined today by our Head of Content and Engagement, Rob Horgan, and our Features Editor, Nadine Badu, to explore the main news stories from the past month. A little later, Nadine and I will be speaking to two special guests as we explore the benefits that could be derived for future infrastructure design through greater collaboration between architects and engineers. Hi, guys. Hiya. Hi, Claire. Now, this podcast is the first we've recorded in 15 months without being under any coronavirus restrictions. But not really much has changed for us yet, as we're still working from home for a few more weeks and we're still recording remotely. But what's happening in the industry with regards to the return to office working and the end of restrictions? Rob, you've been looking into that a little bit, haven't you? Yep. So we, uh, as soon as Freedom Day was announced, we sort of gave all the contractors and clients a ring around to see what their plans were post uh, July the 19th. Unsurprisingly, most uh, most places were unsure what they were going to do. Uh, we're carrying out a review, sort of talking to unions about what their workers wanted. Uh, sort of unsurprisingly, I guess, Tideway were, were pretty firm straight out the gate that they were going to keep all their COVID measures in place, including masks where it's not possible to social distance, um, sort of cleaning regimes and all the, all the sort of COVID measurements that they've had on site for the last... God, how long is it now? 15, 16 months. Lose track of time, don't you? So they were the first. Um, however, it doesn't seem to have helped in terms of staff isolations. Um, Tideway have come out this week and said that they have seen an increase in the number of staff having to isolate, both because of having COVID and because of uh, the so-called pandemic in terms of uh, people being notified via the app that they need to isolate. Um, TfL is also been in touch and confirmed that 110 of their construction site workers are currently having to isolate either with COVID or because of test and trace, which has of course led to sort of fears that there won't be enough staff to continue these projects uh, can keep them motoring on. Build UK have come out and, and called for the easing of restrictions to be brought forward for construction workers. So that's... Uh, if you've been double jabbed, you wouldn't have to isolate, even if you get a message to isolate on the Test and Trace app. I believe that's right. Have I explained that right? Yeah, I think, I think so. So, yeah, having a big impact, really, the uh, the end of restrictions and not necessarily in a good way so far. So um, it remains to be seen where we go, but it looks like uh, COVID measures are staying on majority of construction sites. And I think that's only a sensible and logical way forward for the time being. Yeah, I said at the time when we were putting that news story together that I wasn't surprised that Tideway had taken a clear stand on its COVID policy before we even knew what stage four of England's roadmap was going to look like. And Tideway has always set out to go way beyond the legal limits for health and safety and set a much higher bar for itself. 
I was a judge earlier in July on the ICE London's big debate, which asked whether COVID had been a friend or foe to civil engineering. And Tideway CEO Andy Mitchell was putting the case for friend there. But it was clear that the project had really focused on putting its staff first throughout the pandemic and were making sure that its supply chain also paid its staff, whether they were on site or isolating at home. I think that was really important. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, navigating that personal impact of the restrictions is such a challenge, isn't it? Um, as the majority of those lockdown restrictions have eased, there is that fresh challenge for the industry as business look to support staff because many people will be returning to working in the office. Now, obviously, it's important to note that home working certainly hasn't been an option for everyone during lockdown. But for those that were working remotely, that transition back to the office might well bring with it a range of new concerns and anxieties. And that challenge is, is actually the focus of a, an opinion piece we've recently published from Lango Rort's Kate Goodger, who is Head of Innovation and Performance at the business. Um, In the article, Kate discusses the challenges of transitioning to a new way of working and outlines the hybrid approach that Lange Rourke has introduced for employees. So put simply, she says that the principle of hybrid working means to match the location to the task so that the right work is being done in the right place. Now, ultimately, there are three requirements that have to be met equally, and that's the needs of the person, the team and the business. And I think striking that the balance between those three sets of needs will be hugely important and not just for engineering, but for every business going forward. Yeah, I think it's certainly going to be interesting to reflect on this period in a few years' time and see how the pandemic has created a real step change in not just the technology we use, but how we undertake our work and how we work as individuals too. I think we've learned quite a lot, haven't we, in the last 15 months. But one thing that the pandemic hasn't changed, unfortunately, is the impact of engineering failures on society and the need to learn lessons as engineers. And sadly, we've been reporting on a couple of fatal incidents recently We looked in depth at the collapse of the Champlain Tower South condo in Florida, which claimed the lives of at least 97 people in a new special earlier in July. But this month, we've also been looking at the impact on infrastructure following the floods in Europe. The death toll there runs into hundreds. And as we record this episode a week after the flooding, I still don't think the full scale of that tragedy is is clear yet. Rob, you've been looking into how the infrastructure has stood up to this test. What, What do we know so far? Yeah, obviously the images from largely Germany, but also Belgium and the Netherlands as well were all pretty shocking. Um, I'm pretty sure everyone's seen the the giant sort of landslides and uh, the sort of devastation in in largely in Germany, as I say. Um, in terms of the damaged infrastructure, German officials have revealed that more than 600 kilometres of railway track and 80 stations have suffered major damage from the floods. Deutsche Bahn said that it had more than 2,000 workers uh, already, you know, busy trying to repair some of that damage. Um, however, they, they said it's too early to put a time or a cost estimate against uh, how long and how much it's going to cost to carry out those repairs. Um, similar story on the roads. Um, there's an image of a a pretty major motorway bridge, pretty much, well, it looks like it's just snapped in half over a river, which really sort of shows you the the sort of power that these floods brought with them. There are also four dams in, in the area which were, were at risk of overtopping, or three of them were at risk of overtopping, um, overflowing, um, and there were, there were serious concerns about one reservoir dam in particular, um, and authorities were actually so concerned that the dam was sort of faced a potential collapse that they evacuated around 5,000 people from their homes. So I guess the 
it's still an emerging picture of the of the overall damage, but it, it really brings home the sort of sort of devastation that climate change is causing, you know, um, not just in Germany, but around the world. Yeah, I've seen some suggestions that saying that heavy rainfall was forecast and the two rivers that were worst affected were named in those forecasts up to a week before. But maybe the warnings were not shared as effectively as they should have been. There's going to be a lot of investigation into that, I imagine. Yeah, I guess those with with those warnings, I mean, I guess they could have evacuated people quicker. But in terms of protecting infrastructure, I'm not sure there is much you can do at that point with two weeks notice. I don't know how you protect your railways and your roads and your dams. You know, you kind of have to do. Do we have to just sort of give up, get everyone out and assess the damage afterwards? I mean... I'm not sure that's a sustainable way going forward. No, I, I guess it's more it's more about protecting human life. It's not possible to protect infrastructure in that short period. But when you rebuild, I think that's when you need to look at whether there needs to be something different rebuilt, whether the um, community needs to be relocated or not. And there's some quite difficult decisions, I think, in the future, not just in Germany, but all over the world, where we look at communities and what infrastructure we have and how it's planned. There's been a lot of discussion around the fact that incidents like that will become more frequent as climate change hits. And that brings us on to our other news story this month, the publication of the long-awaited transport decarbonisation plan by the Department of Transport this month. Although they call it a plan, it's actually really a series of reports, announcement of new consultations and news of R&D funding for a number of different concepts. There's quite a lot to take in there. And Rob, you've been looking at that in depth. What are the key things that civil engineers should be aware of? Yeah, it was very. Um, it was a lot of information to process, shall we say? So I'll uh, I'll whiz through some sort of headline news from it, uh, as you were. So uh, one of the main takeaways was the the DFT's commitment to rail electrification, which is obviously something the industry has been calling for for a long time, and uh, and and been calling for the government to to back as part of its decarbonisation strategy. So the DFT has pledged to publish a pipeline of rail electrification schemes soon, as ever, everything is soon with the DFT. So hope, hopefully before Christmas, that means. Uh, moving on to airport expansions, another one everyone was sort of looking to the transport decarbonisation strategy for. So in terms of expansions, the the DFT sort of stopped short of the... Committee for Climate Change's recommendation that any expansion of an airport must be offset by a reduction in sort of flights elsewhere in the country. Um, instead, it's sort of backed innovation and hydrogen fuels and all these sorts of clever things to to help um, decarbonise the, the country's aviation industry. However, airport expansions will face uh, a sort of climate change test. Uh, it's unsure what that means, but within the transport decarbonisation plan, it says that any expansion of an airport must meet its climate change obligations to be able to proceed. Not sure what that means, really. It's a bit vague, but hopefully there'll be more, more information on that. There's a, a jet zero consultation which is going to be carried out as a result of the transport decarbonisation plan so uh, more on that hopefully in the coming months and years light rail schemes were also given a boost with the government uh, committing to fund more light rail schemes carry out more consultations on where light rail schemes can connect into the existing transport networks um, 
with the promise of more money there. Uh, there's also a consultation on how we can shift from road and air to rail in terms of domestic transport. So how we can basically get people out of their cars and how not flying from London to Scotland and, and how we can, you know, encourage passengers to use railways. This includes, you know, extending HS2 up to Scotland and more potential um, high-speed rail routes. And finally, uh, there'll be a review of the network's policy statement, which uh, in effect underpins the government's road building strategy. Um, this is something that uh, campaigners have, have sort of called for for a long time and is part of the legal challenge against the DFT's current 27 billion road investment strategy. So they do seem to have conceded there. For the time being, that won't impact the, the road building programme. However, any new scheme uh, will be subject to the new policy statement as and when it is written up or reviewed or completed. Uh, and that's your quick whiz through of of everything. Oh, there's also a lot of money for electric vehicle charges, charge charging infrastructure. How could I forget that? Which is obviously been spoken about a long time before, but the the government's now uh, recommitted to investing 1.3 billion pounds over the next four years to accelerate charge point rollout, which obviously will help to decarbonise the roads. That's your lot. <laughs> lot to lot to digest there. Yeah, I guess the electric the electrical charging points are going to be really key into into the um, success of banning the sale of new um, diesel and petrol vehicles from twenty thirty. But there was quite a lot of detail around HGVs as well and and diesel trains, which I hadn't seen before, which is really phasing those out from twenty forty. So it's more of a commitment there. But like you said, there's lots to take in, and the industry has generally welcomed the publication. But there's been lots of money about the fact that the plan is still very high level. It's more about aspirations. It's setting dates rather than cold, hard facts and details about how to achieve those targets that are set out in the plan. But hopefully we'll see more of that detail emerging soon and it needs to happen soon. On the subject of being environmentally friendly, Highways England's come under quite a lot of fire this month for its management of the historic railways estate. Some of our readers have been accusing it of vandalism, others saying that the work they've undertaken on that estate makes them ashamed to be engineers. Rob, what's the story behind these reactions? Yeah, so it's a story we've been following pretty much since the turn of the year into the historic railway estates uh, portfolio that Highways England manages. Um, and it's sort of really taken off in the last month with the, the infilling of the Great Musgrave Bridge in Cumbria, which has uh, you know, it appeared in the Daily Mail, the Times, ITV, pretty much everywhere on social media. Um, you can't can really escape without seeing the, the images, which were quite shocking when you first looked at them. And uh, NCE readers have been have been pretty unanimous in their reaction that it is, uh, it is not the way to go about things. It's pretty much what they're saying. Uh, a lot of engineers saying it's bringing shame on the profession and it, you know, risks jeopardising, you know, the integrity of engineers, etc, etc. Eden Council, who are the council in Cumbria where the bridge actually is, have, have come out now and said that Highways England will need retrospective planning permission for the work that was carried out. Um, so there, there is the possibility that that would be denied and then Highways England would have to go back and remove all the concrete, I think that was would be what was ha would happen. I'm not quite sure if that 
would be an impossible task or not. How is England have said it's reversible? How much that would cost, you know, the impact on the environment of pouring a thousand tonnes of concrete and then a year later digging it all out again. You know, I'm not sure that's what we want to be doing going forwards. But yeah, it's caused, it's stirred up a lot of emotion among our readers and among engineers and um, Highways England are yet to go back on what they've done. In fact, there's two more bridges in Scotland uh, poised for similar schemes to start in the next couple of months. There's a big campaign to stop that now as well. Um, one that was going to roll on, on and on, I think, for the months ahead. Interesting to see if Highways England sort of changed their approach following the reaction to the Great Musgrave infilling. There's been quite a strong reaction by the public as well, because I know Radio 2 and Radio 4 have both been following the story as well, and they've really come out against it, and the public don't like it. And I must admit, the images we saw are just not pretty, and it certainly does not look like an engineered solution. So before we introduce our special guest today, let's take a look at two stories that we've covered in almost every other news chat on the Engineers Collective so far this year. (laughs) Can you guess what they are? Hammersmith Bridge and the Integrated Rail Plan. So let's start with good news. What's been the surprise development on the Hammersmith, Rob? It's open. Wow. Surprise. I did not think that was going to happen so soon. But it's not not completely open, though, is it? Not completely open. Open to pedestrians and cyclists. Mott McDonald finished uh, extensive checks of the bridge and deemed it safe enough to reopen to pedestrians and cyclists. So we're effectively back to August 2020. Uh where motorists still can't use the bridge. Um, The council and the engineers as well are saying, you know, this isn't a long-term fix that still does need the strengthening work. We're still no closer to any funding sort of deal for that. Um, Well, the DFT have now committed to, to funding a third of the bill, which is around 160 million, but obviously the council and TfL have no money so um, or have little money so when how the permanent repairs are carried out remains to be seen but but let's not dwell on that good news is it's open again you know just in time for the summer holidays so all those kids who've had to take cycle and walk miles and miles and miles you know hopefully in september they'll be able to just cross the bridge and they go back to school so yeah that's the good news there so that's the good news, but now time for the less good news. The integrated rail plan still isn't out. The closest I could get HST Minister Andrew Stevenson to say when it will be published at our future rail conference earlier this month was soon. But how soon is soon, he just wouldn't say other than it's not as soon as many would like. We've now had it confirmed that it won't be out until the autumn at the earliest. How's industry responded to that news, Rob? Yep, so integrated rail plan has been delayed again. Pretty inevitable, really, I guess. You know, most inevitable thing since England lost the Euros on penalties. Perhaps. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> too soon, Rob, too soon. Sorry, 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 I went there. I mean, the industry's reaction has pretty much been that, you know. It was inevitable. Everybody's sort of seen it coming for months now. I don't know why the DFT sort of uh, not come out earlier and said it's not going to be before the summer recess just cause this sort of anxiety and uh, this sort of just real sense of unknown, I guess, about what, what to plan for, what's coming up. The Transport for the North uh, were the ones <laughs> who actually revealed that it was going to be delayed rather than the DFT, um, clearly fed up with waiting. Uh, 
have released their board minute agenda papers ahead of next week's meeting. Um, and that's it, within that, that's where it confirms that the integrated rail plan will be delayed. The knock-on effect to them, obviously, is for Northern Powerhouse Rail Planning. Um, they had delayed their outline business case earlier in the year because the DFA, DFT had asked them to wait until the integrated rail plan had been published. Um, that was back in March. Transport for the North has now said, we can't keep on waiting. We're just going to crack on with our business case and the consultation that needs to happen after it in the autumn, whether or not the integrated rail plan is published by then or not. Within their board agenda papers, they uh, they predict that the the integrated rail plan may be included in an end of year spending review. So it could actually be a a fair wait yet to come, um, you know, talking five months time really from now. The earliest it will be out is September when the MPs come back from their summer recess. Um, but yeah, not good news really. It sort of prolongs the uncertainty without any rhyme or reason really. And it certainly seems to go against the government's levelling up agenda as well, doesn't it? Because uh, so much it hangs on that. I think it perfectly aligns with the government's levelling up <laughs> agenda. <laughs> the uncertainty continues. I think before we go too far down that line, <laughs> let's focus on things we can change. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems, with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash the Engineers Collective. I think now is a good time to bring in our two special guests as we explore the need for engineers and architects to work together more collaboratively in the future. Joining us to look at this topic in a bit more detail, we have founding director of Knight Architects, Martin Knight, and BDP principal and civil and structural engineering group leader, Michelle McDowell. Martin is an experienced architect whose studio is internationally renowned for its design of bridges and infrastructure. He is a fellow of the Royal Institute of British Architects, the Institution of Civil Engineers and the International Association for Bridge and Structural Engineering, as well as an honorary fellow of the Institution of Structural Engineers. Martin's pursuit of design excellence has always demanded a strong interdisciplinary discourse, founded on mutual respect and deep interest in the relationship of the architectural and engineering professions. Michelle has an MBE for services to the construction industry and is a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering. She has won a number of awards for her work in the industry. Michelle is also a past vice president of the Institution of Civil Engineers and has an honorary doctorate from the University of Bristol. Her approach to today's topic is based on the conviction that architects and engineers sharing ideas and working together from the start of a project will result in the design of better buildings. So welcome to the Engineers Collective to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So my background's in geotechnics and I often used to joke that the designs created by architects are what used to keep engineers in business as we work to create the engineering solutions to make, make the architectural design become a reality. But all joking aside, the two disciplines do generally work more closely together than perhaps they did decades ago. But there's always room for improvement. 
Could you explain what changes you've seen over the last decade and the difference that has made for project outcomes? Michelle, perhaps we come to you first. Thanks, Claire. I mean, I think you're right. Traditionally, architects handed engineers drawings and asked them to go away and make it work. I mean, there are pioneers who've driven uh, closer working. The founder of my company, BDP, uh, formed a partnership with Equals back in 1961. It was a collective for design where architects and engineers work together. And there are other examples. You know, if you take Nick Grimshaw, an architect who appreciates structure and wanted to show it off. Um, it may have helped that um, his father and grandfather were engineers, but he, he worked closely with engineers to create some wonderful buildings where the structure and, and architecture uh, work in harmony. I mean, I recall sitting uh, with Nick to develop the structure of the Stock Exchange in Berlin. His vision for that was uh, really a spine with a rib cage to, to create the organic form. Um, and we did create just that using concrete and steel. So the trend not to hide structure away and to expose it, I, I think, is um, a positive one. And the beauty of structure being celebrated is, is a positive move. Martin, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I tend to agree. And I, I love the phrase partnership of equals. I think that's a really it's a really powerful concept and one that um, is, is worth sort of dwelling on. Before I founded my practice in 2006, I worked for Wilkinson Air. And before I worked for them, I worked for Hopkins. So I've also got a background in, in architects that love to express uh, structure and how buildings uh, are assembled and how the, the, the structural forces work. I think the, the, the area of, of my expertise in, in bridge design is perhaps less um, well-trod in terms of collaboration between the disciplines. Um, and, and that's... So progress in the last decade has been... Uh, intermittent, shall we say? Um, it, it's not always not always seamless, and, and for every real success and for every sort of genuine collaboration, um, there are often projects where where the outcomes are, are much less strong than if there had been a, a, a really uh, collaborative process involving uh, multiple disciplines. I mean, as you've already touched on, Martin, there are still some clear challenges when it comes to collaboration. So what are the biggest misconceptions that civil engineers tend to have about architects? Uh, well, um, let, let's let's start. How long have you got? <laughs> well, I, I, I think probably probably the greatest, certainly in the field of, uh, of bridge design specifically or infrastructure generally, is that architects are interested um, only in the aesthetic, only in, in the, the superficial external appearance of a structure, which uh, we are, of course, it, very interested in. Uh, it, it's what we refer to in my practice as the view of, uh, and that's the object in the landscape. It's the, it's the sort of mental identity or, or the, 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 uh, uh, the sense of place that, that a structure uh, offers. Uh, and what that's what differentiates one place from another and and we all as as human beings we need to know where we are from but we we're equally um interested and passionate about and trained in the the view from which is shorthand for all user experience on a bridge so what does it feel like to be um to to use that structure both in its own right and also as part of a route, as part of a, uh, a journey that, that might have started a long way before and would finish a long way afterwards. So I think we have uh, this sort of, there, there is a perception that we only care about this one small aspect 
And in the same way that um, it's frustrating for a structural engineer to be thrown a drawing to say, right, make that stand up. It's frustrating for us to be uh, given the structure and say, right, decorate that. I can see you laughing away there, Michelle. Are there, are there, what are the kind of key misnomers from the other side that exist for architects when it comes to civil engineers? I mean, I think probably that engineers over-design things um, would be a commonly held misconception. I mean, there may be some that do. Um, I'm certainly not an advocate for uh, belt and braces design. But from my perspective, obviously, engineers tread um, a fine line between lean structure and safety. And we, we carry a huge responsibility. So if anything goes wrong, it's the engineer that they call. Um, and no engineer wants to be on the receiving end of a call about a, a failure um, of their design. It's, it's a blood running cold moment. Um, and it usually would turn into, I don't know, months of investigation, representations, worry, uncertainty. So, uh, yeah, I think that's probably it. But I, um, I, on the positive, I do think that um, particularly digital tools have allowed engineers to, to do more early design um, and analysis um, and working with the architect on concepts to come up with more refined structures, which, which is fantastic. So what would a better understanding of each other's profession deliver in terms of infrastructure design and the end user? And how can both professions help to facilitate that improved understanding? Martin, can we come to you first? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a better understanding simply breaks down barriers. And so we, we, uh, we have a greater chance of uh, arriving at a solution that, is, um, that fulfills and serves the needs of the user. Uh, and that I think the... The, the importance of that is that what we do as designers of, of bridges and of, of civil infrastructure is it, it touches the lives of, of people um, every single day and to a degree that is much, much greater than, uh, than, than building architecture quite often. The, uh, and more than that, it lasts for a very, very long time. So the majority of bridges that we use uh, on a daily basis, were were built by the Victorians, so that they they've already provided a very powerful um, service, and the, if they're well maintained, that will continue. Uh, and maintenance being a, 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 a probably a topic for a, for another day. Although to stress as an architect, it is something that we are we're very um, aware of and, and uh, sensitive to. But um, the lifespan of modern buildings is much much shorter. Um, and even though we are now, I think, slowly turning towards the um, uh, the idea of retrofit first, um, the, the 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 use of buildings is is much less intensive than it is of infrastructure. And so, what we do as civil designers really has to be high quality for as long as possible. What about you, Michelle? What thoughts do you have? I mean, I think um, you working together from the outset before ideas are formed can really lead to, I mean, I would say probably more sustainable design, whether it's, you know, changing the orientation of something or placing in a different location on site might help, um, you know, reduce solar gain. Um, I mean, previously, the sort of low carbon uh, discussion was about energy and heating and lighting, but now, you know, we're talking about air tightness and insulation. Um, and, and we're left with the embodied energy in the materials we use. And if, if we can um, sort of work together and make that more efficient, that helps 
address the uh, more sustainable design. I, I also think, um, in a way, there's um, to facilitate it, I think we need more integrated architecture and engineering university courses to improve understanding and uh, probably um, have to admit better communication education for engineers, um, presentations, I, I, reports and documents, you know. Sorry, Maud. I, I, really, I really agree with that. I think communication is key and starting that uh, in education and in uh, interdisciplinary education would be a very powerful uh, sort of change of, of um, mindset. I mean, that said, and um, I, I think I feel quite strongly that we should not try to be each other. Uh, architects and engineers, um, we, we, we were one person uh, a few hundred years ago and, and separated. And I think in part that has allowed each profession to to strengthen its core kind of values and its core skills and we we often talk about why who what how in in designing bridges on the basis that um the why and the who why is the project necessary who's it for is a is a sort of a, a, a an open discourse it's something that happens a discussion that, that gets greater as, as you as you expand it and you need to understand the answers to that before moving on to the what and the how and the, the what and the how are the reductive kind of problem solving analytical uh, skills what's the solution how's it built and architects and engineers have got very strong but different complementary skills in those and if you put them together, you'd undoubtedly get a, a stronger stronger outcome. And so why is the design of infrastructure so important? And how does that multidisciplinary uh, collaboration play a part in achieving that? Michelle, I'll, I'll come to you first. Well, I mean, infrastructure is, I don't know, the backbone of a healthy economy. And um, we all need it. You know, we need our telecom systems. We need our railways, roads energy, water, you know, buildings, even uh, parks. So it's vital for um, economic growth. In terms of where um, multidisciplinary collaboration plays a part, you know, you know, examples could be housing projects where a flood engineer works, needs to work with an architect to locate developments in safe areas or design mitigation measures. I mean, even on my current project, um, restoration and renewal of the Palace of Westminster, architects working with engineers to solve the challenges of, you know, improving accessibility in a, in a grade one listed building. So it's got a lot to offer. And Martin, anything you'd like to add? Well, I think um, just echoing or re reinforcing what I said earlier, that the infrastructure is, is quite often the unseen facility that we rely upon every single day and as Michelle said whether that is uh, the physical infrastructure of, of, of transport networks of, of roads and rail or whether it is increasingly sort of data uh, infrastructure and power infrastructure and water infrastructure those are those are the sort of the positive elements and then um, looking to to the the sort of aged infrastructure that we rely upon, and that may be uh, sort of flood protection and the, the the rivers and canal network that is kind of unseen in in the background. But um, we 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 only spot these things when they when they fail and when they come under uh, acute stress. So it, it really is um, infrastructure is the basis of civilized society. It's the reason it makes it into the um, uh, the UN compact and, and 
it's it's the difference between success and failure in many many countries so when it comes to actually getting the projects underway to build that infrastructure we often talk about the need for early engagement at all levels in the supply chain but do we procure projects in the right way to create that opportunity for improved design and multi multidisciplinary collaboration well, I mean, each employer has, has their own reason for choosing a particular procurement route, whether it's uh, reducing risk or improving quality or you know, even matching their funding models. But my personal opinion is that we're missing an opportunity if we don't get the supply chain involved early. They've got so much to offer. You know, their, their specialist knowledge can shape design and um, it can make it more efficient and make it easier to deliver. I mean, just consider modular construction. We we need manufacturing advice to make um, our designs efficient. Um, and of course, detailed construction sequencing is, is essential on a major infrastructure. So the earlier the advice, the better from my perspective. About you, Martin, do you think we're procuring the right way to, to create the right environment for collaboration? Uh, not always, no. Um, I, I do think we, we, we tend to overcomplicate procurement and quite often we, we set up procurement before the true nature of the project is understood. But I would certainly agree that um, in the past uh, there's a reticence for, for early contractor involvement or for involving the supply chain that, that has been overcome and, and it, with great effect and makes a lot of sense. Um, some of the most successful projects that I've been involved with have been designed and built. But actually, it's where um, often where there is collaboration right at the outset and where everyone has got aligned goals and a, a shared understanding uh, at the beginning. And probably one of the greatest challenges with procurement is the, is the sequence or the handover of information from one, uh, one consultant or one designer to another, to another, to another. That's it. That's often the uh, the basis for failure later on, and whether that is is economic or financial failure, or whether it's even worse. the The opportunity that procurement brings for us to uh, streamline construction and to uh, massively reduce carbon, um, it has to be built in. That has to be a, a, a goal for us. But I think coming back to the start of the question, um, the, the early engagement part, I think is um, early engagement now for me en encompasses all kinds of things, not just procurement, but also stakeholders and, and the, the local people uh, in whose backyard or sometimes front yard uh, major projects are built. And engagement with everyone is so critical because th this is the why and the who part of it. If we don't get that part right, then the procurement system and the design system that follows cannot possibly uh, fulfil the the original needs. So there there is a there's a whole joined up uh, piece of thinking here that that is about collaboration and about interdisciplinary uh, discussion. That is uh, that seems to me to get much more powerful the the, the more rich it becomes. And Michelle, what are some of the other barriers that exist that are preventing that closer collaboration? I mean, I'll, I'll come back to communication skills. I, I, I do think that some engineers can lack self-esteem and confidence to believe that what we do is so important. You know, architects are trained to present and communicate, to sell, to promote themselves, promote their industry and take credit for what they do. And we don't, as engineers, we don't seem to do that easily. 
I, I, and I think the other barrier um, is education, perhaps more integrated and broader uh, engineering um, education, whilst retaining that obviously that core skill of maths and physics. Um, but I think we need to broaden it. And Martin, from your perspective, what are some of those other barriers that you're seeing? Well, I, I think the, just the, the sheer number of projects where there is no architect involved um, remains remains high. And, and um, so I think for us to communicate to clients that we are not only about uh, aesthetics and that design does not only start at stage three, it starts much earlier in the process. It, it, it's um, design can facilitate brief writing. It can facilitate communication and uh, engagement. And then it becomes about problem solving later on. So I think just loosening up some of the some of these fairly strict processes that we have in in place, and that includes between disciplines as well as in in, in how we how we plan, develop, and procure projects would be a very helpful place to start. So I think we conclude that you're both firm advocates of closer collaboration. So can you both give us some examples of projects where there was real collaboration between the civil engineers and the architects and outline the difference that that closer working relationship made for the project? Shall I start? Because I've got a wonderful example, and it's the Audsall Court in uh, in Manchester, where uh, the, the architect BDP, uh, working with uh, civil and structural engineers, for network rail uh, conceived of a a design concept for a a really important part of the the, the new network that connected previously disconnected parts and and added value. Uh, And then Knight Architects working uh, with Acom, Mott McDonald and others for the contractor, um, which was the Skanska BAM joint venture, came together and we took the concept and we developed it. We protected it. We respected it. We didn't change it radically. But we detailed it, and then with all the way through close collaboration with BDP, uh, and it was it was delivered a couple of years ago now, but has been a, a very successful project ever since. And I think the uh, the, the the messages there were were, were really really powerful uh, and very successful. So. That was a, a, a great example. And I just have to say that I don't think Michelle knew that example was coming from the reaction of her face. Has he stolen the one you were going to share with us, Michelle? <laughs> I mean, for me, one, one good example is uh, Tideway, which actually is a major infrastructure project, which the primary purpose is to improve uh, water quality in the Thames, uh, resilience to population growth and flood risk and all that. But the opportunity wasn't misked to also improve the quality and accessibility, I guess, of uh, the spaces associated with that. So there's lots of new landscape being designed on top of what is quite very complex civil engineering works. And uh, I think these spaces will bring the river to life. There's, I think they call it a necklace of spaces along the river. So it's, it's a, an opportunity which hasn't been missed. I think that's fantastic. I think too often in the recent past, we have missed those opportunities, though. But if you look at precisely that example of Tideway and then you compare it with uh, what Bazaljet did um, sort of previously with huge integrated infrastructure where where public space was created, where where sort of London was was made greater um, and in many, many different ways, that's the kind of sort of integrated and coordinated thinking that we uh, we should be striving for, I think. 
I do think people can see the value of public space, haven't they, in post-pandemic UK as well. They like to have that space to spread around. Yeah, so true. And so what about where that collaboration is, is perhaps lacking? And obviously, without naming any names, can you give us some examples of the impact that not having that good level of collaboration between civil engineers and architects has had on a scheme? Uh, Michelle, I'll, I'll come to you first. Well, I mean, I, I've seen it where engineers sort of bending over backwards to achieve an architect's vision, um, having been involved late in the process. So it just leads to what I think is sort of unnecessary structural acrobatics leading to extra cost, overspend, etc. I mean, one, one example in my mind is uh, we talked about sort of railway structures and, and, and they, used, they were celebrated and many were left to go into decline. I mean, take St Pancras as an example, which is now a, a wonderful place. Uh, but look at King's Cross before it was re- developed recently, you know, small entrances, low ceilings, difficult wayfinding, quite a depressing place to go and get your train. But fortunately, again, that's now you can see what's been achieved with uh, with redevelopment. And Martin, would you would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the um, there are a lot of examples, I think, where where whether it's architect or engineer, is put into a difficult position because they don't have the opportunity to um, express themselves and to deploy their skills to the maximum effect. And to to, to, to give an engineer a, a design and say, make it stand up, is just as demeaning as, as to give an architect a design and say, make it look pretty. Um, that that singularly fails to to engage the, the the strengths of design in this country, and we ha- we have some of the best designers in in the world, and we don't always um, really maximise that. And I, for me, I think one of the interesting things about working in in the field of bridge design, in particular, unlike in buildings where there is this sort of superficial skin cladding or whatever you call it to uh, to surround the structure, on bridges it is the same thing. So the the aesthetics is the structure. The structure is the aesthetics. Yet, and that may that may well be the source of conflict between uh, between the architect and the engineer when when we say, well, can, can it not be like this, or can we change this? Um, and we are tinkering with the uh, the core being of the structural engineer. Yet we're also doing something that is about the sense of place. It's about the identity of the people who who, who live near or use this this structure. And it's not simply about uh, what the what the structure looks like. It's about how it um, how it's used and how it fits into the environment. So the maybe maybe it's about empathy, but it's about seeing uh, seeing the the other discipline from from their point of view and and a little bit of sort of empathetic understanding about what we're each trying to achieve. I think would be really powerful. So we started out by looking at how the sector has evolved in the last decade. What further changes do you hope to see in terms of the level of collaboration in the next five to ten years? And what could that deliver for the design and delivery of infrastructure, do you think? I, I think we have only really started scratching the surface uh, in, in mainstream design uh, with parametric tools. And I, I think uh, that will that will continue to, to explore, uh, to explode really, in combination with automation and, and uh, the, the, the the opportunities that that um, computing brings us, and we, I, mean, I was reading an article yesterday that suggested that computing power is actually on the wane, and so we need to capitalise on it now, presumably. But um, I think coming back to Michelle's point, at the core of all this is communication, 
And actually, one of the things that's been really interesting through the pandemic is all of us have had to uh, change our behaviours in terms of communication. They've all we've all had to go online very much more. We've all had to go face to face with a with a camera, and that has changed our behaviours to to a large degree. And I think we need to recognise that and to embrace communication as part of the collaborative process, so that that uh, it, it's it's more effective and more uh, more rich. Michelle, do you have anything to add? Where would you like us to be in five to ten years' time? Well, I mean. I- just looking back in my, well, I have to I hate to say, thirty-five year career, I have witnessed increasing levels of collaboration and respect. I think between architects and engineers. I mean, I think again, as Martin said, it's the, it's the digital agenda. I mean, the the, the evolution of the the digital twin, and um, you know, clients looking at that, wanting that, that capturing both architecture and engineering. I think that will lead to more integrated thinking, perhaps better integration of, of the professions. Uh, and I also think um, the inc- increased pressure to address um, climate change is beginning to affect people, so many people, uh, you know, directly, you know, from just recently the flooding in Germany to the highest recorded temperatures in Northern Ireland, you know, people are beginning to think this is real and it's actually affecting me. So I think that increased pressure to um, address climate change will bring us together as engineer and architect. And I think that that can only be a good thing. I think that's a really powerful point to end on. So unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. I think it's clear that there is so much to be gained from working more closely together across all parts of the sector. Michelle, Martin, thank you for both joining us today to share your thoughts on the topic. And to our listeners, please join us again soon for another episode of The Engineers Collective. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems, with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.